Why don't we uh, stand and begin in prayer? I'm going to ask you to turn around and face the cross so we pray towards Jesus. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. John the Beloved, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. I would say that, that only history will be able to tell us the great men of our age. And in each age, there may only be uh, two or three, four, maybe five truly great men that saved the culture. I believe that one of those men is sitting with us today. And I would like you all to stand and welcome Dr. Warren Carroll, the founder of Christian College. Thank you, Dr. Carroll, for being with us today. It was um, about nine years ago uh, that I drove across the country in my pickup truck, um, had given away everything I owned except what I could fit in the cab in order to attend Christendom College. Uh, the experience that I had there over four years changed my life, and it's the reason that I still live in Virginia today. It's the reason I'm standing here before you today, and it's the reason why I will spend the rest of my life, God willing, uh, teaching the Catholic faith and spreading the truth that I received through the gift of Dr. Warren Carroll at Christendom College. We started the Institute three years ago here at uh, St. John the Beloved and since its beginning we've grown from a small group to, well, still, uh, still a small group. We have a lot of growing to, to go, but uh, last night we had over 90 people in a room that probably could only seat about 30. There was about 35 people in the hallway and another 25, I understand, turned away and had to go home. That's a Friday night. The hunger is there. We are averaging well over 20 parishes represented at each talk and well over 90 people at each talk. Uh, and this is not a once a month program, but every, uh, every week, sometimes two, and this week three talks, and we continually are filling the house. And so the need is there. The, uh, the question is, will we be able to continue financially? And so I turn to you to join me in a crusade. A young man who's here tonight said, said Sabatino, uh, I, I'm all for what you're talking about, but when are we going to start a crusade? <laughs> and I said, are you kidding? I am on crusade. <laughs> I know we have in this room right now a handful of non-Catholics, uh, a, a couple that are Lutheran, another gentleman that's Methodist, that's here because we're teaching the truth about what the Catholic Church teaches and they want to know. And it's our job to keep our doors open to them. So I ask you to join me in that cause and welcome once again, uh, Mr. Christopher Check. Good morning, uh, Dr. Carroll, you do me a great honor by coming, thank you. Thank you. Uh, there's a handout, if you didn't get it, on the back table there, and it will help you follow along, or at least give you hope that this talk is coming to an end. <laughs> And there's a map on the, on the back that makes it a little easy to, uh, to follow. Twice he had saved her life, and to him she owed that on which she now sat, the throne of England. If there were a monarch in the world with whom gratitude should have suggested peace, it was King Philip II of Spain. But to Elizabeth I of England, gratitude was just one of a ready supply of virtues to effect, not when justice required or charity proposed, but when political expedience stood to benefit. 
When Mary Tudor had taken the throne after the death of her sickly half-brother, Edward, the young Elizabeth had, with tears in her eyes, rejected her heretical past, pledged loyalty to the crown and to the Roman Catholic Church. She attended mass alongside Mary and set up her own household chapel, sending to France for a chalice and vestments. It was not long after, however, that the 21-year-old Elizabeth found herself awaiting, she thought, certain death for her knowledge, real or perceived, of Thomas Wyatt's Protestant plot to overthrow the Catholic Queen Mary, struggling to restore the faith to England. It was King Philip, then Mary's husband, who prevailed on his nervous bride twice to spare her half-sister's neck. Another display followed as Elizabeth knelt before Mary, begging the Queen's good opinion of her. More revealing of her calculating and smug soul was the cryptic rhyme she had scratched with a diamond on the window of her room while under house arrest at Woodstock. Much suspected by me, nothing proved can be, quoth Elizabeth, prisoner. Philip had ever held out hope that Elizabeth would return to Rome. After Mary Tudor died childless, the King of Spain backed the dubious claim of Henry VIII's illegitimate spawn to the throne of England over the more rightful claim of the Queen of Scots. One by one, however, his closest allies and advisors in the fight to restore Christian unity to Europe gave up hope on the cold Queen of England. Pope Pius V could not have been more direct. He called her a usurper and the servant of crime in his famous bull, Regnans in Excelsis. But Philip was slow to believe, or at least slow to admit Elizabeth's depravity. As late as 1579, we find him reading correspondence from Bernardino de Mendoza, his ambassador in England, reporting on a recent visit with the Queen. She had expressed her desire for peace between their nations, extended her condolences over the death of Philip's half-brother, Don John of Austria, and inquired after the King's health. To judge from this, Philip wrote in the margin of the letter, she cannot be so bad as they say. She was as bad. Had Philip witnessed all of Elizabeth's diplomatic intrigue, he would have seen her offering through her spymaster, Walsingham, an alliance with the Turkish Sultan, encouraging his harassment of Spanish shipping in the Mediterranean Sea. By 1587, however, 33 years after he had saved her life, Philip had resolved that with patience, diplomacy, vain hope, and even a proposal of marriage had failed to bring about his mighty armada would. By force of arms, the faith would be restored to England. If Spain's position relative to the Netherlands and France were strengthened in the offing, so much the better. What had driven the Spanish king to the brink of war? The convergence of the intolerable manifested in at least four ways. First, the regular reports detailing the suffering and heroism of the Catholic martyrs of England, especially of the Jesuit priests. Weeks of torture, deprivation of sleep and food before enduring that most English of executions drawn and quartered at Tyburn, their entrails ripped from their abdomens as life was yet in them. When Edmund Campion was executed, wrote Mendoza to Philip, it was noted that all his fingernails had been dragged out in the torture. Mendoza described the piety of the English faithful running forward at great risk to their own lives to collect the blood of the martyred priests and to gather their possessions as relics. The account must have fired Philip's Catholic heart to action 
would not England's Catholics welcome his fleet? Second, England had long broken her neutrality in Philip's effort to suppress Calvinist heretics in the Spanish Netherlands. When five Spanish ships carrying gold for the payroll of the Spanish army in the Low Countries made their way up the English Channel in 1568, Elizabeth seized them and their precious cargo. In 1585, she sent her favorite, the incompetent and mediocre Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, at the head of an English army to fortify the ranks of William's rebels, who wore crescents on their berets to show their solidarity with the Turks. Dudley was no match for such a serious commander as Alexander Farnese. He achieved nothing save the loss of one of England's great young poets and a better soldier than Dudley, Sir Philip Sidney at the Battle of Zutphen. Elizabeth put on a show of grief. We know in any case that Philip's sorrow was genuine. Sidney was his godson. Third, the Queen encouraged her privateers to raid Spanish merchant shipping and colonies along the Spanish main. Now history romantically remembers these villains as sea dogs, but men such as John Hawkins and Francis Drake, the slave trading son of a heretic preacher, were really state-sponsored pirates. Santiago, Cartagena, and Santo Domingo were among the towns that Drake sacked and burned. The resume of the man Queen Elizabeth affectionately called my pirate, and rewarded with knighthood in the Order of the Garter, included the murder of unarmed civilians, the systematic burning of hundreds of private homes, the humiliating extortion of jewels from Spanish ladies, the burning to the ground of a Franciscan monastery and convent of poor Clares, and the murder of two priests who reproved Drake and his men for their brutality to the nuns. King Philip felt Drake's sting close to home. After dumping in England the loot obtained during his rape of the Spanish main, Drake led a squadron of 26 sail to invade the harbor of Cadiz, some 60 miles northwest of Gibraltar. The people of the harbor town were caught unaware. Fleeing Drake's cannons, 25 were crushed to death in a stampede to the castle gates. A brave Genovese 700-pound merchant ship gave Drake and his pirates broadside after broadside as the English bore down on the anchorage. But 26 to 1 is no fight, and soon she was at the bottom of the bay. A few Spanish galleys darted about, taking occasional pot shots at the English ships, but their cannons lacked the range to inflict any real damage. Drake set upon the defenseless ships, anchored in the harbor, looting them of their cargo, towing them to sea, setting them afire, and sinking them to the ocean floor. Among the 30 or so ships he destroyed in this unprovoked attack was the magnificent galleon of Don Alvaro de Bazan, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, Spain's captain general of the ocean sea. Drake's raids in 1586 and 1587 were nothing less than acts of war. But in that age, more tempered than our own, the response to such an affront could well have been limited. What occurred on February 1587, however, confirmed Philip in his resolve for full-scale invasion. He could not leave unanswered this fourth intolerable, intolerable event, a crime without precedent in Christian history, the execution of royalty. Elizabeth would doubtless smile today were she to return and read the debate among historians that yet continues concerning the extent of her complicity in the murder of the Queen of Scots. Her signature is on the death warrant, whether she later regretted so public an event or not. But when the wigless head of the tragic Catholic Queen, who had been the night before denied a priest, hit the scaffold floor in the great hall at Fungay Castle, as some 200 members of the English nobility looked on, preparations for an armada that had been more than a year in preparation took on a new vigor. Never in naval history had so large a fleet been assembled for so distant and amphibious invasion. 
The idea of sending an armada against England was more than 30 years old. Maria of Hungary in 1551 wrote a letter encouraging her brother and Philip's father, Emperor Charles V, to send a fleet to England to free the boy King Edward from the influence of the heretics who controlled him. How many more times the idea had been proposed, we cannot know. But when the purveyors for the Spanish crown, including a middle-aged man with a crippled hand who needed to supplement his meager poet's income, named Miguel Cervantes, came collecting throughout Spain stores to support the Armada, no one was surprised. If the architect of the Armada was Philip, the builder was Spain's great sea captain, the Marquis of Santa Cruz. Don Alvaro had demonstrated more than once his unmatched skill at commanding many vessels under fire. His capacity to read a battle and deploy ships at the critical time and place saved the squadron commanded by Don John of Austria at Lepanto in 1571, and doubtless the entire Holy League. An accomplished tactician and strategist, history has found him deficient in logistics. Although he made the theory of the Armada a reality, he did not give su sufficient attention to detail in provisioning and arming the fleet. Moreover, as his correspondence with the king ma makes plain, he lacked confidence that the plan could succeed without a fleet much larger than he had at his disposal. Santa Cruz's career was spared the defeat he feared. He died exhausted in February of 1588. Philip replaced him with a man with a proven track record for administration, Don Alonso Perez de Guzman El Bueno, the Duke of Medina Sidonia. El Bueno was an ancient family title, and in the case of Don Alonso, it was well-deserved. Admired throughout Spain as a devout man with a humble Catholic heart, Don Alonso's integrity was beyond reproach. He was intelligent and generous to the workers on his vast estates, which made up one of the largest and most powerful aristocratic houses in Spain. The difficulty is that he was not a sailor. He knew his limitations, and he wrote to Philip protesting the appointment. But the king was not alone in thinking the duke the right man for the task. And insofar as readying the fleet to sail, he was correct. Under Medina Sidonia, Lisbon sprang to life, foundries forging cannons, shipwrights repairing vessels, quartermasters inventorying and loading supplies. The Duke had taken preparations that had languished under the skeptical Santa Cruz and tightened and accelerated them, breathing a new vigor into the campaign. Nonetheless, he harbored deep doubts himself, not only about his own merits as an admiral, but also about the enterprise as a whole. He was not the only one. Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma, another Lepanto veteran, was the second part of the grand plan, and he had little confidence that it su could succeed. The difference, it seems, between Medina Sidonia and Parma is that the former, out of loyalty to his king and a Christian knight's sense of duty, even in the face of great odds, put 100% of his heart and strength into the duties of his command. Parma did not. Still, Farnese's judgment was that of an expert. At the tender age of 42, he commanded the finest army in Christendom. Spain's veteran army of Flanders, which he had used decisively to crush the Netherlands Calvinist rebels. His role in the great enterprise would be to lead his army of 17,000 to rendezvous with Medina Sidonia's fleet near Calais or Dunkirk. There, the Spanish ships would deploy 17,000 soldiers of their own and then protect the United Army's from the English fleet as they made an amphibious assault across the Straits of Dover on invasion barges and land their armies somewhere between Dover and Margate.
The plan was bold. A rendezvous of this scale between separate units unable to communicate effectively because they were divided by so much territory had never been attempted. But Philip was convinced that it would succeed. And the reason he was convinced is the tragic flaw in the greatest monarch of the 16th century. An understandable, but no less regrettable, spiritual pride. Philip's certainty that his devotion to the Catholic faith and his pr profound desire to see it restored to England and all of Protestant Europe meant that what was good for the Catholic king of Spain was good for Christendom. Pope Sixtus V had declared the crusada against the heretics of England. Doubtless, God desired Christian unity. King Philip was God's instrument, more than willing. It was not a special destiny he claimed for himself, but a special responsibility. If God wanted the Armada to succeed, Philip would see to the execution of its ambitious plan. Philip behaved, in the words of Garrett Mattingly, as if executing the will of God relieved him of the need for human precautions. Medina Sidonia took every precaution that he could. And when he determined that his fleet was as prepared as it would ever be, he gave the order to sail. The fleet's crews and soldiers confessed and assisted at the holy sacrifice of the mass. Medina Sidonia knelt before the high altar at the cathedral in Lisbon and received from the Cardinal Archbishop the Armada's banner bearing the image of Christ crucified on one side and the Blessed Virgin on the other. Exurge Domine et vindica causam, it read. Arise, O Lord, and vindicate thy cause. The papal nuncio looked on, thinking perhaps of a candid exchange he had had a few days prior with one of the Armada's senior officers. The story comes from Mattingly. Do you expect to defeat the English fleet when you meet them in the channel? He asked the nuncio. Of course we will, the admiral replied. We fight in God's cause, and he will arrange things, either by some freak of weather or by depriving the English of their wits so that we can close with their galleons, grapple and board. Then Spanish valor and Spanish steel, which are unmatched in the world, will settle the matter hand to hand. But without a miracle from God, the English, whose ships are handier and faster than ours, and whose culverins have greater range and who know their advantage, will never allow us to close and will pound our vessels from afar. So we are sailing against England in the confident hope of a miracle. Now, whether the answer came with a cynical smile or a sincere one, we do not know. But the spirits among the Spanish sailors and soldiers were high on May 29, 1588, when the Armada at last sailed for England. Good thing. Four weeks later, of difficult, four weeks of difficult sailing up the coast of Spain through unfavorable winds and violent spring gales forced the Armada, forced the Armada to put in at La Coruña in northwestern Spain to effect repairs and replace ship's biscuit, salt fish, and other stores which the crews discovered had already spoiled during the long months of preparation. A month later, the fleet was bound for England. And on 30 July, the Armada caught sight of the lizard at the western tip of the Cornish coast. One day later, the English and Spanish ships traded fire 20 miles off the coast of Plymouth. The skirmish left neither side harmed, but it confirmed the fears of the papal nuncio's unnamed captain. The warships of the English fleet were sifter, swifter, and their ability to sail closer to the wind meant that soon into the battle they gained the weather gauge, which saved for one brief morning the English held for the whole campaign. In the days of fighting under sail, when enemy fleets engaged, 
it was standard practice to try to gain the weather gauge, that is the windward or upwind position. The advantages are obvious. With the wind at their back, a fleet could control the time and space of engagement and run down on its enemy laboring against the wind. Further, when ships passed parallel to fire broadsides, the fleet with the weather gauge enjoyed several tactical advantages. The leeward or downwind ships would be heeled over, exposing the hulls that normally would be beneath the water line to enemy cannon fire. When that ship next comes about, any holes that were inflicted on that hull are now submerged beneath the water line, making those holes difficult to patch. The hulls of the ships with the weather gauge would not be so exposed. Also, the cannons of the ships with the weather gauge would recoil less. Why? Because of the incline of the deck, they're recoiling up. And finally, the smoke from the cannons of the ships with the weather gauge would blow toward the enemy, obscuring their, obscuring their vision. In the battles of the Spanish Armada, this last advantage was significant because the English used notoriously poor quality black powder, which created a very thick, acrid smoke. As the two fleets shadowed each other eastward up the channel, there followed a week of inconclusive engagements during which the English kept their range, inflicting relatively little damage on the Spanish fleet, disabling a ship or two, but in no way disrupting the integrity of the Spanish formation. One unlucky Spanish now, or the English would call this type of boat a carrack, uh, Nuestra Señora del Rosario, or Lady of the Rosary, suffered damage to her bowsprit and foremast in a collision with another ship of her squadron. She became separated from the Armada as she attempted repairs. When night fell, the English Admiral, Charles Howard, ordered Francis Drake to shadow the Armada at a safe distance with his stern lanterns lit to guide the rest of the English fleet. But this unreformed pirate could not let slip a chance for booty. Directly disobeying Howard's orders, Drake set a course for the wounded Rosario, overtaking her the following morning and claiming a prize that made him a very rich man. For the Rosario carried 50,000 ducats of the Armada's pay chest. When he rejoined the English fleet, Drake fabricated a tale about pursuing strange sails and forgetting to light his stern lamps. So, to the resume of one of England's great naval heroes, we can add, alongside piracy, looting, burning, and massacre, disobedience, insubordination, gross dereliction of duty, and endangering his country's fleet. Two days later, on 2 August, Medina Sidonia had his one chance to offer battle. A light east-southeast wind gave him the weather gauge. Knowing that the prevailing winds in the channel came from the west, he understood that this opportunity was not going to last for a long time. He turned his fleet northwest to try and slip between the English ships and the coast of England south of Portland Bill to gain what he knew would soon again become the windward position. But shallows off of Portland Bill form a tidal rip called the Portland Race through which neither fleet could sail. The best Medina's fleet could muster were a few broadsides before the English presented their sterns and ran. By the afternoon, the wind had shifted back and the Spanish had no choice but to resume their course eastward up the channel. As Medina Sidonia headed toward the Isle of Wight, his frustration and even contempt for the English unwillingness to fight a decisive engagement shows in his journal. He writes, the important thing for us is to proceed on our voyage, for these people do not mean fighting, but only to delay our progress. The entry is important because it reveals that the English fleet had done nothing to arrest the Armada's progress. What did threaten the Armada's progress was an obstacle of Spain's own making. For now, 
Medina Sidonia was faced with a critical decision and one he lacked the necessary intelligence to make. And by that I don't mean he was a, a, a stupid man, he was a very wise man, I mean military intelligence. The fault was not his. Two forces were expected to converge without the means to communicate until just before they were to meet. Although he had sent messages to the Duke of Parma, Medina Sidonia had not heard back from him and knew little of his exact position nor of his state of readiness. His last chance for safe harbor before rendezvous, as King Philip had suggested, would be the Isle of Wight, where he could wait for word from Parma that the army of Flanders was prepared to make the crossing to Margate. Howard must have anticipated Philip's plan, and the skirmish of 3 and 4 August effectively decided the question for the Spanish commander. Closing to small arms range, but no closer, the English warships sufficiently harassed the Spanish flanks for two hours, during which Medina Sidonia, for the two hours during which Medina Sidonia could have turned north to the island. The Duke had no choice but to con continue his progress toward Calais. By the evening of 6 August, the Spanish fleet had dropped anchor in the Calais roads to await the rendezvous with Parma. The English anchored at a safe distance some miles to the west and critically upwind. At this point, it is fair to ask, what was going through Parma's mind? He sent message informing Medina Sidonia that it would be a fortnight before his army and their flotillas would be ready to cross. Had he been deliberately dilatory in his preparations because he considered the rendezvous impossible? We do not know. We can, however, say that the heroic efforts of Medina Sidonia, the heroic effort that Medina Sidonia put into his command is unusual for someone who doubts the merits of an enterprise. We all have known people who drag their heels, consciously or not, when they are not in favor of a course of action. Perhaps that is the best explanation for Parma's not being ready to cross when the Spanish ships reached Calais. Or perhaps it was simply that the operation required a degree of sophistication of communications that did not exist in the 16th century. After all, by the time Parma learned that the fleet had left La Coruña, the Armada was already in the channel. And he learned that the Armada was approaching Calais only one day before it anchored there. The events that followed are the best known in the Armada story. At midnight on August 4th, Howard launched eight fire ships toward the anchored Spanish fleet. Crude, one must admit, by very brave English sailors who abandoned them into small boats at the last minute. The huge burning hulks packed with brush and dry timber and explosives did not cause any direct harm to the Spanish vessels. Indeed, Spanish scout ships grappled two of these fire ships and towed them off their paths. The fire ships did, however, forced the armada to weigh and in many cases cut anchor cables and put out to sea. In the confusion, that which the Duke had maintained for a week's worth of action against the swifter vessels of the English, the integrity of his formation was lost. By dawn, the Spanish armada was completely scattered, drifting toward the Flanders coast. On the morning of the 8th, Howard seized the initiative and bore down on the scattered armada. The reaction from Medina Sidonia and the sailors aboard his flagship was nothing short of heroic and shows that man for man, the Spanish were every bit the sailors that the English were. Five Portuguese galleons had kept close to Medina Sidonia throughout the night and these ships now screened the disorganized armada from the English assault. Five ships. The ships of Drake's squadron took turns pounding Medina Sidonia's San Martin at close range. The San Martin answered each. Next, 
Martin Frobisher's ships surrounded the Duke, who did not hesitate to expose himself to the danger of naval combat by climbing the rigging above the smoke to survey his predicament. Next, William Hawkins' squadron attacked the San Martin. But by this point, the Spanish were regrouping their ships and coming to their beleaguered commander's aid. The Spanish half moon was forming again, but the Armada was being carried by the tide and wind dangerously close to the Flanders Shoals. Within an hour of certain wreck of the whole fleet, the much prayed for miracle came, a gale blowing the Armada back out to sea. When it was over, the Spanish fleet formed again, offering the English battle, but the English did not take the bait. They were virtually out of ammunition. Moreover, the Armada was past the point of, of hope of rendezvous with Parma, soon to be in the North Sea. When evening fell on August 8th, the Spanish had much for which to be proud. A week prior, they had entered the channel with 125 sail. They had kept their formation intact, and they had held off the English fleet in spite of every disadvantage. The English enjoyed the home court advantage, which gave them a vastly more detailed knowledge of the channel and its coastal hazards. They had swifter vessels that could sail closer to the wind than could the Spanish warships. They had held the weather gauge throughout the fighting. They had more guns. Their guns were capable of greater range. Their guns were crewed by cannoneers accustomed to performing their gun drills while experiencing the pitch and yaw of a ship in heavy seas. And when the fleets first engaged, the English sailors had not already been suffering the effects of over two months at sea. With every possible advantage, the English should have been able to halt the Armada's progress toward its rendezvous with Parma. They had failed at this and had claimed in combat only two Spanish ships. Perhaps the English doubted that the coordinated assault planned by the Spanish was even possible, that all they needed to do was drive the Armada past the point of rendezvous into the North Sea. It is possible that they believe this, but if any of the English commanders did, they did not write it down. What, is, what was certainly unknown to the English was the terrible fate that awaited the Armada. It would be weather, and not the English fleet that would deliver to the Spanish the crippling blow. The journey of the Armada around the north of Scotland and down the west coast of Ireland back to Spain was as Medina Sidonia wrote, among the greatest travails and miseries ever seen. The English quit their pursuit of the Spanish at the Firth of Forth, and even with severely depleted rations and unseaworthy ships, the Spanish, after coming across the north of Scotland, had every reason to expect to be in Spain soon enough. The worst Tempests in memory, however, claimed over 30 Spanish ships, dashing them against the rocks of the Irish coast. Sailors who made it ashore alive were stripped and brutally executed, sometimes beheaded, sometimes their brains bashed in by English soldiers and the savage Irish tribesmen in their hire. Medina Sidonia returned to Spain with two-thirds of his ships, guns, and crew that he left with. A remarkable achievement given the ordeal, but one forgotten in the defeat. For four centuries, English propagandists and poets have spun their version of the Armada. The small maritime nation that defeated the fleet of a mighty world empire, determined to drag that modern nation back into the dark ages of papist superstition. The Spanish ships laden with the ghastly torture instruments of the Spanish Inquisition, were turned away by the dowdy crews of Drake and his comrades, a decision that was confirmed by Providence with an extraordinary tempest. 
If that were not evidence of the will of God, nothing was. Even G.K. Chesterton, in his magnificent ballad, Lepanto, indulges in a heavy dose of black legend, caricaturing King Philip as a disfigured sorcerer brewing poison in his closet in the Escorial. Modern English historians who should know better cannot escape their prejudice in their portrayal of Philip. David Howard declares unapologetically at the start of his Armada history, distinguished for its nautical detail, that he finds Philip altogether unworthy of admiration. A remarkable comment from a solid historian to make about the greatest monarch of the 16th century. There is something in the English version of events that should be given its due, more due today than perhaps it is. The claim of decisiveness. Were the events of 1588 decisive? Well, was the Alamo decisive? Was the Loire Valley campaign of St. Joan of Arc decisive? Was Thermopylae or Lepanto? It is true that Spain flourished as a land and sea power for a generation after the Armada facing her real decline during the Thirty Years' War. But the defeat of the Armada has undeniably taken on the power of myth in the formation of the British Empire's patriotic understanding of herself. The moment heralded the rise of Britannia's ruling of the waves. And modern historians, whether out of Spanish sympathy or something worse, out of their hatred of kind of triumphalism in all of the stories of the West are not honest in their efforts to downplay the event's significance in history. And there are lessons to be drawn from what looks like Spanish overreach for Americans today afflicted with a pride much more troublesome than King Philip's about the merits of our own far-flung enterprises. But for Catholics, looking to decide where to cast their sympathies and what understandings to draw from this tragic tale, there is enough evidence even in the English version of events to help them choose sides. That we cannot admire Drake and his fellow Puritan pirates seeking to vanquish the whore of Babylon is obvious enough. But there is more. Spain provoked, we are told, war with England because she denied English merchants commercial access to her colonies in the New World. To be sure, Spain was guilty as charged of practicing a kind of protectionism that was hardly unknown in England. In any case, the argument reveals what was most at the heart of the English motives, trade. In other words, mammon. And when Britannia began her own colonial adventures in the New World two decades after the Armada, which led to the founding of the state named for the Virgin Queen, the enterprise was one of state capitalism, not evangelization. Whatever faults we can find in Philip II or in any of the men who led or served this most Christian of empires, there is no denying that at the origin of her policies, from the Netherlands to the new lands across the sea, that an Italian map maker funded by the Spanish queen claimed for Christ in 1492 was the cross and the spread of its message of redemption for all mankind. The courageous men who sailed with the Spanish Armada and endured its privations and died in the horrors it suffered are no less a part of this legacy in salvation history than are the glories of Don John of Austria or Hernan Cortez. The Via Dolorosa, for example, walked with such patient humility by the Duke of Medina Sidonia, who, in his abundant correspondence and diaries, not once blames anyone but himself for the Armada's failures is no less an inspiration. God does not measure the progress of salvation history with political victories. Indeed, there may be no 
better way to contemplate the tragic tale of the Grand Armada than with the words found in the correspondence of J.R.R. Tolkien. I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. My friends, Tolkien's words are not words of resignation, much less despair. They are words of understanding. Understanding that at the center of Christianity is the cross. The defeats in our church's history are no less a part of her glorious story than are the victories. Each offer a window into the life of heroic virtue to which we are all called. And this virtue is made manifest in no better way than on the march to Calvary. Thank you. All right, we'll take our usual five-minute break. Um, and there's still coffee and some croissants in the back, so feel free. And then we'll, we'll have a short question and answer period. Question and answer, our regular rules apply. Five minutes, five questions max. Uh, make sure your question is one sentence long with a question mark on the end. Well, I told you everything I know about this story, but I'll try to steal a couple. Yes, sir? People in the law said the things of the full flowering of this national genius England needed a third conquest. This is a hard question to answer, maybe, but what would have happened, do you think, if the Spanish Armada had prevailed? <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, the question is, what would have happened if the Spanish Armada had prevailed? It, it, um, I, there are those uh, uh, alternate history novels. Harry Turtledove writes some of them. So, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. See, the difficulty is that um, one of the things that Philip was mistaken about Probably, if the Armada had been able to make a, a, a successful landing of Parma's army, plus the additional 17,000 um, that, that were on the Armada ships, uh, it, it's quite likely that England would have suffered a, a major land defeat, a major land defeat. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it would have been a question of who to, to put on the throne and... Uh, you know, <laughs> well, he, he, he himself had a claim to the throne of England uh, by, by virtue of his marriage to uh, Mary I. Um, but, uh, but, that, but, but one of the things that um, uh, he miscalculated, I think, was the enthusiasm for English Catholics for a Spanish invasion. And some of this, or the lack of enthusiasm, some of this has been overstated. And when Philip was living in England, by the way, I think it's on there, but if, you, if it's not, it's not. You really ought to, yeah, it is. William Thomas Walsh's biography of Philip II is one of the best biographies uh, about a figure in the 16th century, uh, and, it, and it provides very good, I recommend it to you very highly. A well-researched book. Anyway, one of the difficulties is that um, uh, when, Eng when Philip was living in, in England, uh, we hear a lot of tales about how awful the Spanish soldiers were there and how the English built a lot of resentment up for them. But a lot of that is overstated, and, and Philip was extremely careful to require his soldiers to be on their best behavior when they were in England. And many of his uh, officers thought that he was unnecessarily harsh to his own soldiers for various transgressions. He's bending over backwards to be a good guest in England. But in, in spite of that, I mean, Englishmen are Englishmen, Spaniards are Spaniards, and that's fine. Uh, and, and, that, and that contributes, of course, to the, to the black legend. So um, I don't know how long England would have settled for Spanish rule. I just can't guess. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, the question was, did Philip turn to any other Catholic countries in the formation of the Armada? Um, there's a little bit of representation of the Papal States, but, uh, but it's token. And there are, and there are, of course, Portugal, but that's Spain. Um, you know, you have to understand, France and uh, uh, England are at odds. I mean, you, a, a version of the story could be told about how French, France didn't get on board. They weren't terribly helpful. Even when 
um, the Spanish ships come into the Calais roads and uh, some of them disembark to reprovision and things like this, they're not sure what kind of relationship they have with the mayor of Calais, how, just how friendly it is. So France is not interested in getting into this, uh, into this fight. Um, and France itself is, is mired in its own uh, uh, war right now with uh, Huguenots and uh, Bartholomew, St. Bartholomew the Massacre is you know, not even a decade old at this point. And, uh, and so they're not entire, and, 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 they, and they also, of course, fear the, the, the strength of um, uh, Spain in the Spanish Netherlands. And then they, you know, find themselves, they're pinched between, uh, so France and Spain in the 16th century are not really allies. And in fact, Spain sends no help to, uh, to the Lepanto effort, with the exception of the, um, the Knights of Malta, uh, but no, no real help. So, yes, sir. Did I miss something, or did that second fleet, the Duke of Parma's fleet, did that ever engage the British? Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, uh, the Duke of Parma is commanding the land army. Uh, yeah, and they are going to, and 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 he he has been he has been in the Netherlands building, you know, what we would today call Amtrak's or. Um, and you know, uh, amphibious assault vehicles or, or, or boats, which, which even as he's building them, and here, by the way, I very much recommend to you the David Howard book, because uh, he he has a lot of good nautical detail, and he can um, and, he, and he can explain this uh, uh, very well. But there are barges, and and there's doubt in the mind, and so they're being built on canals in the Netherlands. And there's doubt in Parma's mind and, and, and in, in the minds of his officers, uh, even, about, even about the seaworthiness of these barges so that they're building to carry the troops across the channel. So, one of the, so let's say that, that Parma was on board with everything and the rendezvous would have worked. And we got that far. Now what we need is a very calm day as we approach fall in the, in the, in the English uh, Channel close to where the channel and the North Sea meet. And this is rare. This is rare. So uh, getting those barges across and uh, screened by the Spanish, I mean, it, it, of course, we have the hindsight now of, of seeing what they were trying to attempt, and it's a little easier to criticize, but it was, it was, it was an ambitious, ambitious undertaking. No, 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 no. Yes, sir. Not all the Spanish sailors were killed, right? They never married with the Irish. Well, actually, I think that isn't true. Uh, that, 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 in fact, uh, Mattingly contests this in the end of the Spanish Armada. The legend that black, so-called black Irish are the descendants of Spaniards who are intermingled. Mattingly says that, that there is not really any genealogical evidence for, for that. Um, but you're right. The Irish didn't kill all of them. There were a couple of good Irishmen. It's, it is so. <laughs> oh, look, I'm part. Of my 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 mother's mother is Irish. It's okay for me. To, my kids are more Irish than anything else. Where on your map would the army try have tried to cross? The, if you look on the map, where would the army have tried to cross? You see Margate at the uh, at, yeah at the west at the e very east end there of, of southern England. So somewhere from Dunkirk o o uh, over to Margate, that would have been the the the, uh, the place of the uh, crossing. Yes, sir. In the fall. Uh, you indicated early that Philip was doubtful about what was going on in England, the evils uh, under Elizabeth's reign. Could you compare and contrast the intelligence apparatus of England against Spain and Spain against England in terms of the <laughs> The question was, um, uh, was there, was there did the English did the English have better spies than the Sp than the Spanish did um, in the in the opposite countries? And I, I will preface by saying I am completely speculating here because I do not know. But uh, but but if 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 Spain uh, did not have uh, better spies, or it, uh, then if Spain had good spies, then Philip was extraordinarily naive. And it's possible that the spiritual blindness uh, um, contributed to that. Uh, but I don't know that there's evidence. What we, or, or, or I don't know the evidence. There must be. Someone must have done a study of this. What we do know is that um, 
uh, uh, Walsingham uh, was, you know, was, was, was the inventor of modern spying. I mean, he was magnificent at this. And so it's quite possible that, uh, that um, England had uh, better spies. But I don't think that the uh, Armada was, I mean, that, the, that England, England was completely ready when, uh, when, the, when the Spanish ships uh, show up. Um, but, I, but that's just, that's my speculation, I don't know. Colonel, do you want to add to that? Can you? No, I'm just saying, we know more about Walsingham's spies now because there's any number of books out that deal with Walsingham because the records are available in England and you know, all that kind of, I don't know if there's a comparable book on that from a Spanish perspective. Right, right. Why did the Spanish Armada sail north to the North Sea? Why did they just go home? Why didn't they come back through the channel? And go north around the top. Well, the reason was because to, to come back through the channel, they would have had to fight their way back through the channel, uh, through the English ships, but also they would have been sailing against the wind. It would have taken longer for them to, to beat their way down the channel than with the prevailing winds go around Scotland and back down the other side. So they would have been fighting the current and the wind. And in the days of sail, the long way around made more sense. Yes, sir. To uh, what extent was the uh, papacy involved at the time and encouraging it all? Uh, was it uh, sort of, yeah, that's probably a good idea if you do it, or did the Pope do the lack of um, Well, the, uh, he's, I mentioned him there in my talk. Uh, Ur one of the urbans declares a crusada against the English heretics. Uh, and he does, um, he, they, do, they do provide some, they do provide a pledge, the Holy See provides a pledge of money, a lot of money, but the money is not going to be forthcoming until the Armada launches or, or until the army lands. Is that, how, is that how it is, I think? Yeah, something like that. And so uh, it's, um, it's hedged a little bit. So it's uh, some vocal support. But by this point, the, the, you know, the great crusading pope of the crusading, I mean, we're not really talking about the period of the crusades here, but um, Pius, Pope St. Pius V has, has died. Uh, so the fellow who was able to fire up Spain and Italy for the Holy League in Lepanto has long gone, and so the, the Holy See themselves may have, well, clearly by making this pledge and not fulfilling it until the army lands, they're doubting the merits of the enterprise. Yes, ma'am. How much does the About two-thirds about two-thirds. And Medina Sidonia, after the storm uh, takes, to, finally exhausted and completely broken, takes to his rack for the balance of the, um, for the and, and then, when, and then when the ordeal's not over when they get back to Spain and they pull into harbor, and I've forgotten just now the name of the town in northern Spain. Um, these, some of these guys are confined to the ship. It's, it's weeks before some of them get off because they have nothing to do with all these sailors. It's really horrific what they, the ordeal that they endure. And it doesn't end when they get to Spain. Medina Sidonia um, re retires to uh, his estates and, uh, and writes his memoirs. And he, he really is a, 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 a great and heroic, uh, a man of great and heroic heart. He was seasick the entire voyage, the entire voyage. So if you've ever been seasick. <laughs> how do you suppose they got provisions going the whole way around? Well, the question was, how did they get provisions going the whole way around? And the fact is that they did not get very many provisions. They, um, uh, this is part of the problem. They had to go on very severe rations, and uh, and they were they were you know starving. Yes, sir. Uh, what part did the map technology play on either side? Map technology. The, the quality of the map. Yeah, this is an, this is a, the question is what 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 was the quality of maps at this time? Uh, here again, I recommend the Howarth book as, uh, very much because he talks about um, the the role of navigators in this sort of work, and you really needed one. Uh, and, 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 and it was almost not so much a question of maps, but of personal knowledge. And you would have a man who would be very familiar with the coastline and where the shallows were. And if you didn't have, pilots they were called, pilots. And if you didn't have such a man, uh, you know, on interspersed throughout the, the, the ships of your fleet, you had no hope of making uh, this sort of sailing. So charts were not nearly as reliable as the kind of stuff that sailors can benefit from today. And somebody, some sailor helped me here. I think we're a little before the 
invention of longitude, aren't we? Way before, yeah, okay, yeah, so. So, well, they only had latitude to go on also, so navigation was, it was by coastline, it really was. All right, I, whoops, I, you know, one more, or? okay. Is that why so many ships were lost? Well, that, but also the effect of the storm. I mean, this was, this was a very, very powerful storm, and I've not seen that coast of Ireland, but it's pretty unforgiving. There are not a lot of places to sit, set in there. Yeah, right. All right, my friends, um, special recession or bailout pricing on the CDs. If you buy three, you get a free one. That does not include the Lepanto set, which is, which is three lectures in one, but that also is discounted from 30 to $25. So uh, um, I think help, help, help support one of my son's seminary education. I don't know which one it's gonna be, it's gonna be one of them. Thank you. <laughs>